wherever in the world you are. Welcome to the Health Zone Show with Mihal O'Mahuna, where with each episode I explore interesting health and well-being topics with a thought-provoking guest. These topics can range from nutrition, relationships, spirituality, finance, creativity, mental health and much, much more, so that you can live a healthier, happier and more authentic life. Guests on the show vary from health experts, spiritual teachers, finance wizards, sports legends, to ordinary people with extraordinary lives. Find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show, or you can also join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, pin interest under The Health Zone. Check out our new updated website, www.thehealthzoneshow.com, and at the moment, you can receive a free copy of my latest ebook, Seven Ways to Boost Your Overall Well Being When You Join the Health Zone. Today, I'm talking with Benedictine Monk of the Monastery of Christ Our Saviour, Torvey, England, and the Director of the World Community for Christian Meditation, Father Lawrence Freeman. Hello, Lawrence. Hello. Tell me, Lawrence, did you always want to become a priest and a monk and live a religious life? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, I was, uh, my, my way into it was uh, actually through meditation. And my teacher uh, was an Irish Benedictine monk called John Maine, whose family roots were in Kerry. And I met him when I was uh, when I was quite young, and he introduced me to meditation, probably in my first year at university. And I tried to meditate rather unsuccessfully for a few years, and uh, worked for a few years after university. And when I had a um, uh, the chance, I took up the opportunity to go and make a long retreat, a six month retreat at his monastery in London, uh, where he had just started a meditation center. And uh, so I did that six months, uh, and it was a challenging time, but, you know, a fruitful time and a a happy time. Uh, And at the end of it, I was ready to go back to the real world, but then discovered that I had lost my taste for the kind of things I wanted to do, the career I wanted to have. And so I was uh, a little bit uh, in tension for a while, not knowing I didn't want to become a monk at that time. I thought maybe I should wait till I was rich and famous and then give it all up. Uh, But I decided to try it. And uh, as soon as I made up my mind that I would try and, and be a monk, I felt very peaceful, so I felt it was the right thing to do, and I've never regretted it. So I'm I'm basically a monk because of meditation, and that is what keeps me going. Around this period as well, Lawrence, you had an agonizing time in regards to what to do with your life. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Well, I, I had uh, studied English literature at Oxford and um, had the option of an academic career, that I thought I should get a little bit of experience of the world of of business and, and mammon. So I, uh, I I taught for a while, then I uh, went into a merchant bank 
I never thought I would stay there very long, but I wanted to see how how that world operated. And then I, um, uh, when I finished that, I came into uh, into journalism and writing, which is what I was really cut out for. As I said, I went into the into the uh, the monastery for six months, not intending to be a monk, but really wanting to pin down and get myself into a discipline of meditation and had the great advantage of a of a great teacher and so it was at the end of that six months I had come to quite a lot of self-knowledge which is what meditation and slowing down will do for you and uh, the self-knowledge was of course difficult to to gain but it was um, seemed to me uh, worthwhile and important to pursue. So I, I was intending to go back, you know, into, into journalism and writing, support myself by journalism and, and devote myself to writing. But uh, I, I, just, I just felt I, I wanted or needed the, to, to put meditation and the practice of it and the life that it leads to for me uh, at the center of my life. So that was a struggle because, uh, as I said, I, 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 I didn't want to be a monk at that time. I thought it would be something I would uh, maybe come to in 30 years' time. But, uh, but it, was, uh, so it, was a ch- it was a it was a challenge. I, I took uh, a few months off to uh, test, test my, my sense of direction. And then as soon as I thought, well, I have to try this, I, I knew that it was the right thing to do. And it's been um, been a blessing. And, uh, you know, you like any decision you make, I suppose, if you get married or you start a new career, uh, things change. You, you make a, a definite decision to do something or marry someone. But, uh, you know, then things evolve and change over the years. So I've been a monk in different ways and in different places and different uh, conditions, but um, it's been a way of life that has always been grounded for me by that original inspiration. I know your own mother, Lawrence, is from Bear Island in, in West Cork as well. What has been your own experiences on Bear Island as a way to deepen your practice? Well, Bear Island for me was always a rather magical uh, part of my imagination because of the stories that my mother told when I was growing up in London. And when I actually went there when I was about 12 years old, I, I got a bit of a culture shock uh, as, a, as a little London boy because it was a little too, too, too rustic for me. Uh, but then I came over the years to love it. And I went and spent uh, uh, some time there in the... Um, sort of a sabbatical period in, in solitude there. I rented a little house there for five pounds a week. And um, it was a very simple house with, uh, it had electricity and it had uh, a cold water tap, but that was all. And uh, so it was a bit of a shock, but I, within a, I think 24 hours I had adapted and I loved it. I, I, I felt it was... Um, it brought me to a simplicity and an immediacy that was very um, a great context for for meditation. You know, I think if you 
have meditation at the center of your life, then you, you, your life becomes and needs to be uh, more simple. So, um, so Bear Island had that uh, effect on me, and I was drawn back to it over the years, not only for family reunions, but also eventually um, because through the generosity of, of some people in our community, uh, we were able to get a, a house, a little, little more sophisticated house than the one I first stayed in, but uh, a house on the island. And um, so I would come there regularly uh, for times of solitude, uh, a bit like a Celtic monk, uh, just uh, enjoying the natural environment. It's a very beautiful and peaceful place and warm, warm place uh, in terms of hospitality and the kindness of the people. And I suppose having, having family roots there also helped me to settle in. And then um, I was able to say Mass on the island uh, on Sundays uh, when I was there. It made life a little easier for the parish priest in Castletown Bear. So that also gave me a stronger spiritual link with the, with the uh, life of the island. And then uh, we started to have retreats there. Uh, so we have um, a number of retreats there each year now. We have a Holy Week retreat. People come from all over the world, and we have a, um, a retreat in, in the autumn, in September, for, uh, on, on a theme of healing. So we have doctors and nurses and herbalists and physiotherapists and psychologists. People interested in, in the work of healing come together for a week um, to meditate and to reflect on the, on the art of healing. I'm doing a, a, a quite an extended course with the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland, um, introducing a program of contemplative healthcare, contemplative medicine. So that has uh, connected connected us to Bear Island as well. So over the years, um, it, Bear Island has been it's, it's two two things for me really. One is a place of solitude, and another is a place for teaching. And it's an ideal, ideal place. And people, people love coming there. Um, the uh, island has a, 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 a rugged uh, beauty, certainly on the other side of the island, uh, facing the sea. It's a, a beautiful wilderness, um, but protected on the, on the landward side, of course, um, facing Castletown Bear. So it's uh, it's been a very special special place and a, a place of grace uh, for many people. You mentioned there about healing, there, Lawrence. What does it mean to be a healer? Well, I think uh, there's an important distinction between healing and curing. And modern medicine, using the wonders of technology and science, which have extended our lifespan so amazingly, uh, the danger is, is that it becomes too focused upon curing, which is just dealing with the symptoms um, and seeing the meaning of the person um, easily gets lost when, when that happens. And so I think to be a healer means to deal with the person, the whole person, not just the patient, and to see that uh, suffering and death, for example, which we have every 
good reason to avoid and should try to avoid uh, 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 well, when we can. We should reduce suffering and, uh, and, and, and live well uh, for as long as, 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 as is right for us. But, um, but eventually suffering and death have to be accepted on their own terms and they are part of the meaning of life. So we will all suffer, we, we, we all die. So I think a healer is somebody who incorporates these experiences of suffering and death into, uh, into their work with the patient or the person they're helping and, um, and is in touch with meaning. So a healer is somebody who has uh, an experience of meaning and can share that experience with a person who may be in pain or in, in, in anguish or in, in grieving or whatever kind of suffering they may be experiencing. And the healer is somebody who can be with them, pay attention, use their skills to make life easier for them, but also help them to, uh, to make meaning out of what is happening. And I think meaning... What does meaning mean? That's a big question for modern people. And uh, without meaning in our life, our life is less and may even degenerate. So meaning is an essential component of, of human existence. And I would say, in the simplest terms, meaning is about connection. It is knowing that you are connected with yourself, with others, with the universe, with God, with ultimate meaning. And that experience of connection is, is central, I think, to the work of the healer. And Lars, if somebody out there listening in today is struggling to have meaning in their life, what would you say to them? I would say, to begin and to continue, um, take time to be. Take time to be still and silent and simple. And that is a, a sacrifice of time or a gift of time that you give to yourself. And the reason I think that so many people today feel that their lives are disconnected or meaningless or chaotic or lost. I mean, I was talking to some young people the other day and... This, this word lost kept on coming up, that they felt lost. They'd lost their sense of direction and lost their sense of meaning. And it was very tragic because there were young people with everything to live for and, and health and beauty and intelligence and so much to, so much to celebrate and so much to, to develop, so much potential. So I think uh, what is missing in modern life is... Um, is something that in traditional societies uh, was taken for granted, was that um, however busy you were, whatever your work uh, load was, it was necessary to take time to be. And because of the circumstances of modern life and the, the, the speed, the pressure, the bombardment from the media, uh, we have lost this natural ability for contemplation. 
Um, we haven't lost it, but we've 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 dropped it. And uh, so I would say the simple simple response would be to to take time uh, every day uh, and to be faithful to that time, simply to be in stillness and silence. And that, of course, will lead you probably to say, "How? How can I do that?" And that's that's the next step. Um, and that's where meditation comes in, uh, because it's a way of, of of doing that. And and I think our great teachers in this respect, uh, in our culture, are children. We are teaching children, uh, teaching meditation to children now in in thirty countries around the world. And um, actually, our new national coordinator for the um, Christian meditation community in Ireland. Uh, has been is, is a is a, a former principal of the school and has devoted himself now very very much to to working uh, to bring meditation into schools and it's the simplest and easiest thing to do at least from the children's point of view sometimes you have to win over the hearts and minds of the teachers but children show us that they are hungry for this experience of being, of stillness and silence, of meditation. They're hungry for it. They ask for it. They can do it. They, they like to do it. And uh, when we see them meditating, I think that opens our eyes to something that's missing in our own life. Lawrence, many people in today's world seem to struggle with silence. Why do you think that is? I think it's uh, it's 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 a it's a habit of noise that we have uh, taken on, and it's mental noise. Um, I mean, I I, w- I was in India recently, and uh, I was struck by how it's a, it's still uh, it's a confused and chaotic place in many ways, but uh, it's still a religious country with deep spiritual insights, especially in the rural areas, but it's very noisy, you know, people have windows, windows in the poorer places, they don't have air conditioning, the windows are open, even if you do have air conditioning, the air conditioning is very noisy, so silence isn't just the absence of noise, silence is the ability to pay attention, and silence is the work of attention, and with our uh, culture, we have become, we have become basically very very handicapped by our loss of attention I was on a plane the other day and um, uh, a, a young family came in and the husband and wife the parents went and sat over uh, on the side of the plane and they left their two children next to me and I thought oh dear this is eight hours of kids making a lot of noise and uh, disturbance I wouldn't be able to sleep but I didn't have to worry they sat down they took out their iPads they turned on the TV screen and they were completely absorbed in in that um, mental activity for the next eight hours it was well it gave me a quiet flight but it made me sad to see that so I think we we, we, we now apparently have an attention span of uh, less than that of a goldfish a goldfish has the glorious eight seconds uh, of attention span and uh, whatever, I don't know how they measure that, uh, but we're, we're supposed to be even less than that now. So we, uh, 
we're frightened of silence simply because we associate it with something different than what we're used to, that we've lost the habit of being silent, and it frightens us because it seems like a void or an emptiness. And the irony is, is that if we can actually taste it and take the medicine of, of, of silence, of meditation, we, uh, we see that it isn't, it isn't an absence uh, or a, um, a void or an emptiness. It's actually a great fullness. What is the purpose of meditation? The purpose of meditation is to be fully human and to, uh, first of all, I would say, to, be, to come to self-knowledge, uh, which is a hard work, but in my, in my tradition, in the Christian monastic tradition, the early uh, Christian monks from the 4th, 5th centuries, who would be of the same ilk as the, as the um, Irish monks of that period, they have a saying, it is self-knowledge is a greater gift than the ability to work miracles. And we live in an age of miracles, technological miracles. But the miracles of our technology and science are, are inadequate without self-knowledge. And we see that with science all the time. Science without wisdom is... Um, is dangerous, it's even meaningless. So self-knowledge, I think, is the first uh, goal of, of meditation. And in this same tradition, in, in the Christian tradition, self-knowledge is the basis of our knowledge of God. We cannot know God without knowing ourselves. So sit, sit and be still, and uh, self-knowledge will, will come. It just comes... Uh, Maybe not easily at all times, but, it, but when it comes, it's a, it's a delightful thing to have. And you're, you're, you live better and you, you can make better relationships and you can see the meaning of, of, of your experience much more clearly. Uh, I've been teaching a course for MBA students recently. And uh, these are young people in their maybe late 20s or 30s who are... Um, taking a little break in order to get an MBA and improve their, their market rating. Uh, but the ones who come to this course on meditation, I think, are looking for, um, for something more than just stress reduction. Stress reduction is just a byproduct of meditation. It's not the purpose of it. And um, they quite wonderfully to, to, to behold, really, they, they grow, you can see them growing over the period of the weeks when they get into a, a daily practice of meditation. Uh, you can see their understanding of the world, of themselves, and, and um, you can see that uh, changing. Uh, and what, what's, what's bringing about the change is, is what I just call self-knowledge. And I know, Lawrence, that John Main said the process of meditation is the opening of the eye of the heart. What does he mean by this? Well, it's sort of universal uh, wisdom of the human wisdom traditions that we have three, three eyes. We have three ways of perception. We have our physical 
vision. You can see things. Uh, you can, as it were, uh, accumulate data. But then we also have the eye of the mind, which allows us to categorize and interpret that data uh, rationally and imaginatively. So we will say, for example, when we're thinking about a particular piece of data that we've absorbed or a situation, we'll say, oh, I see. I see what I've got to do, or I, I see the meaning of this. So both of these are important, but in our world, uh, that's often where we stop with the second eye of mental perception or mental vision. But all the great wisdom traditions say there is also this third eye, the, the eye of the heart. And as you say, John Mayne uh, saw this as the essential meaning, the goal of meditation is to open the eye of the heart. In the process, it will, it will, it will um, help you to interpret the data better. You know, so your mind works better and calmer and clearer and make better judgment when the eye of the heart is open. Now, how do you know when the eye of the eye, eye of the heart is opening? Well, the eye of the heart is a way of seeing different from either physical or, or mental perception in that we don't see it just, we don't see the world or other people just as objects outside of ourselves to scrutinize or, or, or uh, objectify. We see, we see them from within. There's an empathy or a sense of knowing from within the thing or the person that we are knowing. We, we, we know from within. And the simplest word for this, actually, is love. So the eye of the heart is, uh, is the eye of love. And meditation is... In, in, in the Christian tradition, meditation is a form of contemplative uh, practice or prayer, is um, a work of love. And this is what the Dalai Lama uh, says as well, that you know, the purpose of all our meditation is to become compassionate. And so we, you know, we, we, we of course, share that, share that understanding from, from our own perspective. And... So I often say to people, if, if you haven't become a more loving person after 20 years of meditation, then you can get your money back. Do you think the Irish hermits and scholars and saints, say back many years ago, practiced meditation? I, I, they certainly did, of course. And um, they lived a, uh, a meditative life. Uh, I, I was reading a beautiful description just this morning actually of uh, a fifth century um, hermit uh, describing his uh, hermitage and his his blissful um, way of, of, of relating to to nature uh, in all aspects of nature and all kinds of weather you know um, so I think they lived a uh, a truly contemplative life, but that would not have been possible if they didn't have a practice. And we actually know historically that the the Celtic monks, the, for example, the monks out on uh, Skellig Michael, 
and the ones who built the all the um, beehive huts in 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 in, that, in, in, in southwest Ireland, that these uh, these had direct connections with the early monastic movement which started in the deserts of Egypt about the fifth century. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, you think at that time that they would have had this exchange of views and, and influence. So they, some of them clearly visited. Irish are great travelers, so they probably always have been. Uh, they, they, they would have visited these um, monks, or, uh, monks of the desert, as we call them, the fathers and mothers of the desert, the Egyptian desert, and they would have brought back that wisdom. There's even a, uh, a strong possibility, uh, a little hypothetical, that uh, St. Patrick whoever he was, but St. Patrick uh, would have spent some time with one of the great teachers of the desert in Marseille uh, before he came back to, um, to Ireland. So they, they were plugged in, uh, in into two sockets, I think, the, those Irish monks, which is spirituality that's extremely valuable for our situation today, strangely enough, one of the sockets is, um, is this uh, tradition of meditation uh, and with, it, with its Christian uh, understanding and framework. Every kind of meditation has some, has some kind of framework for it. And for the Irish monks, of course, it was the, it was the love of Christ and the, and the beauty of the gospel that was transformative for them. Uh, so there's, there's that. There's the, the Christian tradition of meditation through the monastic um, uh, lineage. Uh, and the other socket is, of course, uh, the great traditional love of nature and relationship to the natural world, which preceded uh, Christianity in Ireland um, and, and goes back in all cultures to a, an indigenous uh, you know, traditional people. I just came back from Australia where we had a, a seminar on meditation and the environment or the environmental crisis. And the question we were asking was, does it make any difference to the environment if we sit and meditate twice a day? And the conclusion was, yes, it might seem a little counterintuitive to the politicians and the economists. But I think even the politicians and the economists who were with us at that conference were able to, to understand why we say that. And we say it because uh, clearly a new way of understanding, a new kind of consciousness is needed in the world today to solve the problems we have created. And as Einstein said, you don't create problems, yes, sorry, you don't solve problems at the same level of thought that you create them. So we need a contemplative consciousness, and a new way of seeing and relating to the environment, and uh, in fact, a new way of, 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 um, of being human and of seeing our, our unity as a human family. So I think the Irish, uh, the Irish monks have a great, uh, a great lesson for us, uh, a great wisdom. Lawrence, do you think there is a shift in consciousness happening in the world today? I, yes, I think there certainly is. I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. I think there are con contradictory forces at work as well. 
Um, so I think it's, it's vital that there are centers and groups and communities and individuals who affirm what we could call the development of a contemplative consciousness and link that to the institutions of our society. And we try to do our bit um, in the fields of medicine, as I explained, also of education uh, and of business and finance. So I think it, contemplative practice today is, doesn't only mean, however attractive it may be, it doesn't only mean going and living in your hermitage on a beautiful little unspoiled bit of the country, which I love to do when I go to Bear Island. Um, but I think there's also an urgent responsibility for all people today who have this uh, kind of practice, and it's a gift, you know, meditation is a gift. Uh, in one's life, and it's a gift you have to share. Uh, we also need to be able to to share this um, in the marketplace, as it were, you know, with with people in their work and in their professions. So it's uh, it's not going to be easy, and uh, there's a very strong momentum pushing us towards the brink, and a strong sense of chaos, a strong sense of continual crisis. Um, but uh, when that gets to a certain point, which it has, it, it triggers a, um, a, a sort of a self-healing, a self-healing process, and that's where the new consciousness comes from. There's a great, a great poem by Seamus Heaney called "Cure at Troy," and he talk, he's, he says this: believe. I hope I can remember it now. Believe in miracles, cures, and healing wells, and call the healing self-healing. It's, it's a beautiful few lines um, describing the 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 dynamic uh, and you know the, the deep dynamic of um, of healing and self-correction that takes place in the individual, but also in, in in the community as well. I know John Main stresses the importance of the right questions rather than the right answers. What does he mean by this? Well, I think uh, he 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 would often say we we need to um, we need to be able to sit with the redemptive question rather than come up with uh, quick answers, and it means. There are some things in life which are problems. You have a, you have, you know, your car doesn't work or your bank balance isn't working. Uh, well, these are problems, important problems, and you, you, you have to solve them. They can be solved. But we, we, we tend today to reduce everything to this mechanical model of problems. We even think of the human being as a, as a, in terms of a, of a machine. And uh, this disastrous um, dehumanizing that takes place. So I think uh, rather than problems, we need to think of mystery and, and see a difference between mystery and problems. Problems you want to answer the questions. How am I going to get this car back on the road by tonight? That's a, that's a problem. It's not a mystery. But 
there are other aspects of and more meaningful aspects of life uh, where we have to realize there isn't an immediate solution but we enter into the mystery of reality uh, and a mystery is, isn't something vague and uncertain. You, you experience the mystery. It hits you between the eyes. A mystery is a very powerful force of reality. But you can't reduce it to a, a, a rational or a, you know, a, a, a simplistic uh, explanation or answer. So uh, the, the mystery experience of life um, means that you are, are prepared to sit with a question that you can't answer. Um, I, I wrote a book called Jesus, the Teacher Within, in which I, most of the book actually revolved around one question of Jesus. And it was in a passage where he, it says, it describes him uh, sitting with his disciple, no, Jesus was praying alone in the company of his disciples, which is a little mysterious. He's alone and he's with his disciples and he's praying. Then he turns to them and he says, who do people say I am? And they give him various answers. And he doesn't respond to these answers. But he then uh, he looks at them and then he asks them, but who do you say I am? It's a completely different kind of question. So, you know, what's the opinion polls? Who do people say I am? Am I going to be elected? Very different question from saying, but who do you think I am? And that's, and what is the answer to that question? The answer to that question is, 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 is relationship. And it's, it's life. It's a, it's a life you live in this in the presence of that question but that question becomes more and more of a revelation of truth as you live it so i mean that's one example of it so i think um identifying the the really important questions of meaning in our life uh, puts us into touch with with the mystery and this is not an escape from the the, the big decisions and the necessary solutions to problems we have to come to. It's actually the best way we have. So, and I think this is backed up with, um, with uh, recent brain research, actually, which illustrates this. I don't think it explains it, but it illustrates it, that we have two hemispheres of the brain, and the left hemisphere of the brain deals with a model of reality. We create a, a picture of reality, and we see reality and in terms of that model. But the right hemisphere of the brain, you could call it our more contemplative hemisphere, is actually in touch with the flow of things now. It's actually, you, you know, the left hemisphere of the brain kind of in our culture, culturally, we laugh, we dismiss this contemplative consciousness. It's flaky, it's it's not you know practical but actually all the research shows that um if you want to see where you are in touch with reality and truth as it is now it's your right hemisphere that's going to do that so 
it's, it, it, it isn't one or the other, of course, it's about recovering a balance. And you know, that's again, that's where I think we need a contemplative practice in our lives to get these these two two hemispheres back into balance. And I know, Lawrence, you said the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am, can only grow in self-awareness. How is this? Well, it's a subtle, it's a subtle thing. I think uh, it's subtle and personal, but it's also about relationship and community. I, I, I don't think it's just an abstract uh, question that you work out on your own in the middle of the night. I think it's uh, something you live uh, in relationship to other people who are disciples, who are asking the same question. and So that's where community uh, comes in. Now, it's true that uh, Christianity over the centuries became excessively left brain, really. Uh, certainly Latin Christianity did. Excessively west, left brain. So that uh, our understanding of that question of who Jesus is and who do I say he is, became uh, reduced to uh, a formula, a dogmatic formula and catechism answers. Now, I had nothing against catechism. I learned it as a child and I, I, I find sometimes the, those early questions come back to my mind and I think they're quite brilliant answers. But, but you, can't, um, you can't reduce the mystery of Christ to a dogmatic formula or an orthodox opinion. I, I had been, was studying for some time and wrote a little book about it on the difference between belief and faith. And we often use these two terms as if they were the same, but they're really different. So what is faith? Faith is the fact that, well, on a small scale, that I uh, turned up for this interview on time. I was faithful to an appointment, to a commitment that we made. Faith is uh, also, at a deeper level, is expressed when you, when you commit yourself to another person, in marriage, in friendship, uh, in, in any form of life. And you, you make a promise, you live that promise as well as you can, uh, through good times and bad times. And we know that this act of faith, which is repeated over time, integrates the personality. It, it, it heals us, it develops us. A person who is not capable of a faithful commitment uh, is, is a very sad person and, and will experience life as sad. So this is what I mean by faith. It's our capacity for relationship, for perseverance, but also therefore for transcendence, because you transcend the ego that wants to just buzz off and doesn't like the hard times. And therefore, faith actually uh, leads to love. And there's a, there's a very ancient uh, saying from one of the teachers of the early church. Um, the beginning is faith. The end is love, and the union of the two is God. So that's how I would see faith. Now, what is belief? Belief is a framework of values uh, 
which enables you to live your life with some kind of uh, you know, ethical and meaningful way, especially when you have difficult decisions to make. And it's not only conceptual beliefs, you know, I believe in God, the creator of, and so on, but it's also um, symbols, the important symbols of our life. And that's one of the ways in which I think modern life has, has become very um, undernourished, is uh, our loss of a symbolic system. And I think we, you can see a lot of people now struggling to, to, to develop or, or connect to a symbol, uh, to a set of symbols, a, concept, a symbolic system, uh, which, is, which is really, I think, what belief deeply means. So, so I think uh, faith, faith and belief then um, are both necessary, but at the end of the day, what really takes us into the, into the healing and the self-healing uh, is faith. And Lawrence, if somebody is listening now and they have lost faith in God and lost faith in them, their life and themselves and even the belief in themselves, what would you suggest as a starting point for them to recover that faith and belief? Well, I think uh, the, the, the real starting point is, is even if they are in a, a dark place and a lonely place, um, that the fact that they are aware of that is, has a seed of hope. They just have to be aware of it. And keep, I would say, you know, it's important to, to keep in touch with that self-awareness. That's the beginning of the self-knowledge that will flower. I, I have a little, uh, uh, it's actually a weed, <laughs> kind of a weed-type tree, uh, outside my, my, my room here and every uh, it's the last one to flower every year and it's not a great uh, special plant it's a bit of a weed but I just got fond of it and somebody said to me a few days ago that it didn't make it didn't survive the winter and uh, well it's no great loss to the world that it didn't but when I looked at it uh, but I was disappointed and when I looked at it um, yesterday, I saw there was a little bud coming out. It was amazing. I mean, the stick looks as, as, as dead as a dodo. But uh, there was definitely a bit of uh, life. It's still life. So however dark and dead life may seem, the awareness itself is the, is the seed of new life, of growth. The next thing I think is... Is to embrace that, trust that, even though you don't know where it's going to take you. And then I think look around you because there will be someone or some group or some center or some community or some fellowship or some individual who you will be able to connect with. It's, it's just inevitable that there is. But you have to have that sense of that minimal sense of connection with yourself first and trust that and it will bud and uh, new life will, will come. What do you think is the value of an inner transformation in our spiritual lives? 
Well, I think it's the value of, it's the supreme value, really, because life is about growth and transformation. And we are conditioned today by our culture to think that, that we are in control of everything, including our own growth and, and, and um, transformation. Now, it's true, we are responsible. We have a responsibility for that. We have to nurture it. We have to make time for it. We have to, we have to, you know, respect it, obey it. You know, the laws of human development, like grieving, for example. You can't just, you can't just turn off your grief. It will take. There's, there are laws, internal laws, personal and psychological, that will lead, you know, lead you through that period of grieving, or, or. You, you know, the cycle of life uh, in all its forms. So uh, we are responsible to that, but we don't control it. So I think uh, transformation is essential for any sense of human meaning. We, we're frightened of change, partly because it, it does make, make us feel we don't uh, exercise complete control over everything. Uh, but when you see that letting go of ego control, which is what we do in meditation, uh, that's very difficult for us at first. And the ego will put up a big resistance to letting go of what it thinks is its complete control over ourselves and our life and everyone else. But as soon as you realize that letting go of that kind of control actually puts you into a, a, a stronger harmony with the, with the uh, momentum and the mystery of your own life, then this is freedom. It's not something to be frightened of, but it's, it's freedom. Everything that happens to us can be a metaphor of who we are and why we're here, Lawrence. Do you think this is true? Yes, I think we uh, just go back to the... Uh, to the, the left and the right brain uh, thing I was talking about. Um, it seems that the left brain is really incapable of pretty much a sense of humor even. Uh, the left brain cannot say sorry, for example. Uh, we, we cling to that model of reality that we constructed. And the left brain is just not cut out for metaphor or for a symbolic view of the world. So we want to reduce everything to data and stats and, you know, metrics and, and measure everything. It's ridiculous when you think of, you know, some things you just can't measure in that way, but we keep on trying to. And we create ridiculous organizational systems and systems of government. So, but the right hemisphere of the brain, which let's, say, let's just call it our contemplative side, is very comfortable with metaphor and symbol and sacrament. And, you know, those early Irish monks uh, lived in that symbolic relationship to the world. They saw the natural world around them, the most simple, obvious things, uh, the, 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 the animals, um, the, the weather, the wind, uh, the rain, the, the, the plants and the herbs. Everything they saw in this um, as 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 a book, as a living book, uh, 
which they were which they were delighted to be able to read and that's not how we see the world anymore so we i think when we have a contemplative practice and give time for it this symbolic view of the world or sacramental view of the world you might almost say is uh, is reactivated i mean just come back to the church as we're talking in ireland uh one of the one of the reasons that the church has lost touch in its rituals with uh, with so many people is that the sacraments were celebrated in a rather mechanical way as a duty that had to be done or that had to be performed and an obligation and what what was what became lost was the way in which the proper celebration of a sacrament um, activates your symbolic imagination. It opens you to see through simple things like water or bread or wine or oil, you know, through these simple things, it, it just sparks your symbolic imagination your view your view of the world and um, so it's vital uh, you know for us to get over this idea that everything is can be reduced to a mechanical model or that um, the symbolic imagination is just fantasy uh, because it's not uh, now of course we do need to measure certain things and keep appointments on time but the, the, the deeper meaning of life is, is, is touched when we're also able to see the world and people and events and the joys and the tragedies of our lives even, you know, with this um, symbolic imagination. Back 2,000 years ago, do you think that Jesus taught meditation, Lawrence? Um, well, if he didn't, um, <laughs> I'm in the wrong job. Uh, <laughs> yes, he did. Um, he, uh, if you look at the teaching of Jesus on prayer, what does he say? I mean, just briefly, he says, uh, don't get caught up in external rituals. Go into your inner room, close the door, pray to your father in, who is in that secret place. Do not go babbling on like the heathen who think the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. Do not worry. Let go of your anxieties, material anxieties and so on. Don't be obsessed with them. Set your mind on God's kingdom before everything else and live in the present moment. Do not worry about tomorrow. Now, you put those uh, key elements of his teaching together. What have you got? You've got interiority. Silence, equanimity, calmness of mind, mindfulness, and being in the present moment. And those add up to contemplation. So Jesus is not a teacher, uh, as far as prayer is concerned, uh, or in any other way, actually, about that he's not concerned with rules and regulations. He is a teacher of contemplation. And... Um, so the next question, and this was the question that the early 
the early monks uh, formulated and, uh, and, and wrote about uh, and passed on is how do we pray in this way? And for me, uh, and I think for many people and in the whole of the Christian mystical tradition, uh, meditation is, um, is a direct way of, 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 of practicing prayer in the way that Jesus taught. That's certainly what I feel every day. And that doesn't, doesn't replace other forms of prayer because we have other aspects to our mind and imagination. So we, we, we have other, other practices, other forms of prayer. Today, especially, I think we have a lot to learn from other traditions and we have also a lot to share with them. So this isn't uh, creating a little, little closed cell or world, um, but there is a very clear emphasis in the teaching of Jesus on contemplation. Lawrence, many people can say that they don't have time to meditate. What would you say to them? Uh, well, it, it, you know, as a, as a monk, uh, they, they, if I say to them, you know, it would be good to meditate every day, they might say, well, that's okay for you. You're a monk, you've got, you don't have a job, you're unemployable, you've got nothing else to do all day. But I would point to people in our community, the Christian meditation community, the three or four hundred groups, uh, Christian meditation groups meeting all around Ireland, uh, or go to the website, uh, our website, and um, you will see examples of people with very busy lives, extremely busy lives, who um, do make time to meditate. I'll just give you one example of it. Uh, one of our community is um, is uh, the general counsel at the IMF in Washington. And uh, he lives in an organization that is, uh, you know, lives in crisis. And IMF is all about financial crisis. So he lives with this continuously. Uh, but he also meditates uh, twice a day. And he would say not only, not only does meditation help him to do his job and to keep his balance and to keep calm, but it also brings many other benefits. But he, uh, when he comes and speaks uh, to my MBA class, the students uh, will say to him, you know, this, this is great, but you know, how do you do it? How do you find time? And uh, he sort of shrugs his shoulders and he says, well, it's just a question of priorities. He said, uh, if I'm sitting at my desk and the managing director of the IMF uh, calls me and says, Sean, I need to see you straight away. Uh, he, he says, I don't say, I'm sorry, I don't have time. So it's coming to that understanding of, of time as uh, a question of priorities. And that takes time. I don't think anybody, I certainly didn't. When I started to meditate, I had very bad time management. I mean, that's probably why I became a monk. And uh, so everybody, everybody, when they start to meditate, will find it difficult to find time. But in making the time and building the habit, it may take you some time to do that, but in building the habit, you are transforming the way you experience time. And 
this is a, a you know a major transformation I think in our consciousness is that um, we we have this experience of the present moment and of stillness even in the midst of a lot of activity. I was talking with a group of doctors in uh, in Dublin uh, a few days ago, and uh, it had been about six weeks since I'd seen them and. Uh, so I asked them how they had got on with the with learning to meditate and and, and, the, and the practice, and I was surprised uh, actually. Uh, some of them, uh, some of them said that they uh, had had uh, done it very regularly for a period of time, maybe two weeks or three weeks, and then something happened. They got busy or they went on a trip, and uh, they, they lost the habit but they wanted to get back to it. Uh, some of them, because it's, it's a question of personal temperament and uh, personal circumstances, um, how you, how you uh, develop this practice in your life is, is going to take time. But, uh, and we all have our own challenges for that. But it's, uh, it is possible. It is possible. I do think, actually, that um, it's very difficult to learn to meditate entirely on your own. I think the experience of meditating with other people on a regular basis uh, makes a world of difference. Finally, if somebody wants to find out more about your work, how could they do it? Um, if you go to our website, um, which is our international website, is www.wccm.org. And there you can find the Irish um, uh, website, a, a link to that. So th that would be first connection. Um, and quite probably you're, you're, you're not living too far away from a, 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 a weekly meditation group. Um, and their island is always there as well. <laughs> Thanks so much. For chatting today, Lawrence, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. It's good to, good to, to talk with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another inspiring and thought-provoking show of The Health Zone. I am Mihal Mahuna. Just to remind you, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or you can join our Facebook group, The Health Owners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram and Pain Interest under The Health Zone. To gain further invaluable resources on health and well-being, go to our website www.thehealthzoneshow.com When you're on there, join The Health Zone and you'll receive a free copy of my latest ebook. Seven ways to boost your overall well-being. Finally, I would love to hear any feedback you may have on the show, and even if there are any particular guests or topics which you're interested in, please email me on tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Until next time, this is Mihal. Thanks for listening, and I wish you a very healthy, happy, and authentic week. <laughs>